0: The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician.
1: Hello everyone. Uh, w- welcome. Um, my name is Nathaniel Brooks. I'm from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. We're here today for a NASS Ask the Experts uh, session. I'm here today with Dr. Michael Steinmetz of the Cleveland Clinic and Dr. than Thanh, of the, uh, um, Oregon Health Sciences. Um, and we're going to be discussing uh, the topic of mobile spondylolisthesis and and in, in the lumbar spine and, and, and its treatment options so um what i want to really do is, is set up with you guys kind of the, the the case scenario um, this is a patient who has an l4 5 spondylolisthesis um, it's it's uh, uh, causing an l4 radiculopathy um, that's their main clinical symptom complaints um, we find on dynamic imaging uh, that that there's mobility uh, about a grade one to two slip um, of of the um, of L4 and L5 and uh, severe foraminal stenosis, um, when the patient goes into a supine position, it reduces almost entirely back to, to normal, um, and their symptoms resolve. Um, so, so the scenario and the c- and really the question today is, um, what are the what are the available treatment options, both surgical, and non-surgical, and and how do you approach this type of patient? So, um, I, I'd like to start with you, Mike, if you don't mind. Um, uh, what, what do you do um, in this type of patient really for a diagnostic workup or, or anything like that to try and try and make decisions about what you want to do?
0: Uh, you know, excellent. And I, and I think you've, you've presented it in a way that we have a lot of the diagnostic imaging, but I think if, if we even take a step back uh, with a patient with spondylolisthesis, I do you know obtain y- at least standing X-rays. I, I'm not sure uh, you know we're going to hear what you two do, but we've not, I've not found a huge difference between a standing lumbar X-ray plus a flexion extension x-ray. So typically what I would do is look at my MRI if it's reduced, but perhaps I'm suspecting a, a spondylolisthesis, like maybe the symptoms are only withstanding. There's not a lot of compression on the MRI yet. I could see a lot of, you know, gapping in the facet joint, T2 signal facet. Uh, I'll then obtain a weight bearing x-ray and uh, look for that mobile spondylolisthesis. And uh, what I've seen at least anecdotally is usually you'll pick that up with just weight bearing. So I don't typically get Flexion extension lumbar X rays just a personal preference. I'm not sure if it adds too much in this patient population, but I would pick up the spinal with that. Um, I still think though, with uh, you have you know at least uh, articulated a patient with an L4 radiculopathy, and often you can tell that you know based on where their symptomatology is. But sometimes there's overlap, so I do would pro- or I probably still would uh, perhaps send them for a diagnostic injection just to confirm that indeed I'm at the right spot and. And, and feel very comfortable that I've, w- I've worked this up completely. And so if I've got a good injection, I see the, dy- the dynamic aspect of the spondylolisthesis. Clinically, they have a radiculopathy in the L4 dermatome. I'd feel very satisfied that this is the cause and sure. probably would,
1: would quit diagnostic workup at that point. Sure, sure. And uh, Koi, what do you think um, as far as diagnostic workup for this type of thing? Do you, do you typically do uh, weight-bearing films, flexion-extension films, or, or, or...?
2: Yeah, I agree with uh, uh, a lot of what uh, Mike said. Uh, for this type of patient in my practice, uh, they'll generally come in with an MRI. Mm-hmm. Prior to seeing them, I'll get uh, full-length standing scoliosis films just mm-hmm. to understand their overall spinal balance and make sure that uh, I'm not missing anything else from a, from a deformity standpoint. Um, I'll generally get uh, flexion extension films although uh, I agree a lot of times the, um, the films are of low quality and um, I, not much is, is much difference is seen between flexion and extension um, I generally Rely on a uh, clinical diagnosis mm-hmm. and uh, do not send them for uh, a diagnostic injection frequently. Although uh, we'll always send them uh, to try non-operative therapies first, such as physical therapy and sure. perhaps a therapeutic uh, sure. injection.
0: Sure. It quite brings up a good point. I think that uh, we should probably st- stress the idea of getting scoliosis X-rays, which is when wh- we get a weight-bearing film. It typically is a three-foot film to look at the uh, scoliosis X-ray to look at. The overall spinal alignment. It's important, I think, when we evaluate them, but also if we plan an operation, is you know uh, what is their s- spinal pelvic balance? You know, do I need to have, I- or surgically, do I need to change it at all? Do I need to make sure I maintain it? So I think that knowledge ahead of time is critical. So I just want to back you up on that. That's something I do sure. as well.
1: So uh, another part of this scenario, I think, is valuable, and Coy touched on it. Is, is that there are sometimes where where the patient will come to your office like this and they definitively have the symptoms and they definitively have a mobile spondylolisthesis and yet the the insurance company still asks you to do six six weeks or even three months of physical therapy do you think in that scenario there's really going to be value to that in the end or have you seen have you seen a patient with a with a mobile spondylolisthesis get better with therapy in a a long-term way
0: well I think um, Oftentimes when we see them. It's a little bit more end stage in the disease. Uh, I, I think they do improve with physical therapy. We see uh, improved core strengthening, improved endurance, uh, improved walking, you know, ability and duration. Mm-hmm. Um, often, again, I think in my practice, usually I'm seeing them in that end stage. So it's hard to say that I'm seeing someone that has symptoms have gone completely away. But uh, with physical therapy, But I certainly have seen some that have done that. But I think it's it's incredibly helpful and it and it, and it does help prepare you know in their overall management the and also if we're yeah. going to operate on them it's it's you know yeah. it,
1: it's it does good for them um, and, and Koi what do you think in, in those scenarios Ther- therapy you, you'll typically do it for a defined period of time or, or will you will you depending on the films, those kinds of things. Yeah, uh,
2: as, as Mike alluded to, and especially in Oregon where I practice, we have a lot of trouble getting um, uh, surgeries authorized by insurance if patients haven't been through an appropriate course of, sure. of non-operative therapy. You know, I think the SPORT trials looked at uh, spondylolisthesis patients and did find um, some improvement uh, in the cohort that was treated um, mm-hmm. just non-operatively, although not to the same extent as, as those treated surgically. Sure. Um, anecdotally, I've um, had just a handful of patients probably who mm-hmm. I sent to non-operative therapies and they improved to a point where they uh, were no longer interested in surgery. But sure. I agree that the majority uh, likely end up needing a operation at some point.
1: Okay, we're going to switch switch questions and talk about just goals of surgery in the, in these types of patients. So if if either one of you can start, but maybe with Mike just to switch back and forth. Um, what what uh, when you're when you're d- thinking about doing this type of operation, what do you what do you, especially when you're teaching residents and stuff, what are you teaching them as goals of the operation?
0: Sure, and, and I think we've seen this change over time, which is which is interesting when we look at operating on the, on this problem. I think if you go back in time uh, or go back, you know, a decade or two decades ago, uh, often this is treated with a fusion, instrumented or non-instrumented, but the goal of that operation was simply decompress the nerves and obtain a fusion. And once we obtain a fusion you had a satisfactory outcome and that was it. Um, I think today, um, uh, the goals of this operation would be to one, decompress the nerve. That's all this patient needs, right? It just needs nerve decompression and their symptoms are going to go away. That's their only complaint, essentially. Um, in the case you present, uh, it's, it's interesting in a sense that it could be done directly by removing you know bone over the and or indirectly by just patients reduced and hold them uh, stable with uh, say a fusion so um y- you know that you could look at this either way with regards to how you do the decompression but we need to decompress the spine directly or indirectly uh and we've got to either maintain lumbosacral alignment or lumbopelvic harmony mm-hmm. or obtain it with surgery and so i think that's one thing that we teach now uh, to our uh, residents and fellows is sort of make you know looking at our, our pelvic incidence, our lumbar lordosis, mm-hmm. uh, seeing if we match it, and if we do, make sure we don't lose cer- lose that or make the end plates parallel with surgery, but maintain lordosis. So I don't think necessarily in these cases do I worry so much about the fixing the lateral translation if I'm gonna operate on, but I wanna make sure I fix the angular translation so I at least keep them lordotic, don't lose lordosis decompress the nerve, uh, and then in, in, in this case, with a mobile spondylolisthesis, is stabilize them with an, with an instrumented
1: fusion. Sure, sure. And Koi, if you just comment on just the, the general approach types for treating a spondylolisthesis and kind of what you think the pluses and minuses are of are those different types of approaches and what your preferred one is, that would be sure. interesting.
2: So um, for an L4, L5 spondylolisthesis, if the patient comes to me just with uh, leg pain, I'll um, oftentimes uh, just do a decompression Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I prefer to do those in a a minimally invasive approach. Um, If they uh, come with both back and leg symptoms then the options include um, uh, anterior approaches, um, lateral approaches as well as uh, posterior approaches. Mm -hmm. Uh, Essentially for um, almost every uh, one level um, uh, spondylolisthesis case I do uh, I'll do it uh, minimally invasively uh, from the back Uh Uh also called uh, mis t or Uh transforaminal lumbar interbody fusion. Uh Um, I found this uh, uh, technique uh, effective to uh, decompress the uh, affected nerves, um, stabilize the spine, Uh and uh, relying on the uh, interbody work to, to promote a fusion.
1: Okay. And 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 uh, of course we're, we're we're commenting on the, the restoring uh, some lordosis or, or improving the sagittal parameters. And do you feel confident when you when you do the MIS-T lift that you can can achieve those goals? Or, or
2: I do. You know, I think a lot of the naysayers of MIS-T lift. Uh, uh, claim that it's uh, a kyphogenic uh, procedure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's actually been borne out in the literature You know, Juan Uribe recently reviewed all the MIS-TLIF and MIS-lateral mm-hmm. uh, Papers and um, actually found that MIS-TLIF is not kyphogenic. It's mm-hmm. not particularly lordosis inducing, but mm-hmm. um, all patients got at least a, a couple of degrees um, I think with a, a, a big unilateral facetectomy and a thorough mm-hmm. I'm usually able to um, Get a good reduction of the spondylolisthesis and at least maintain the lordosis that the patient has.
1: And, and just uh, open this up to the floor as we're kind of finishing up, but as far as looking at the MIS T-Lift versus an open, maybe a mid-lift type procedure, even an open t- typical uh, uh, posterior lumbar interbody fusion, um, how do you've probably all done both. What do you think about the overall results for the patients?
0: So I, I think it's uh, th- there are difficulties with both techniques. I think, mm-hmm. you know, typically with an open uh, uh, decompression and fusion and say it is a T-Lift, uh, you get an excellent decompression. It's bilateral; both lateral recesses, both foramen can be resect, uh, can be decompressed uh, more than adequately. You can resect both facets, mm-hmm. uh, and you can get an excellent, you know, angular correction of the spine. Um, the downside is obviously there's more bleeding uh, and there's more uh, damage to the back muscles. So per- those patients in my hands can, can get an excellent result of their clinical symptoms, but perhaps have a longer recovery, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit more back pain uh, uh, afterwards, and a little longer to re- to recover. Again, think an MIS-TLIF is an excellent option in the sense that uh, if I can obtain the same result, get a good decompression, uh, the patients uh, also have an excellent outcome but, um, uh, you know, get out of the hospital much faster um, and uh, back to work much faster. I think the downside or the, the difficult part with the MIS standpoint is you have to get an adequate decompression. So this patient needs a decompression mm-hmm. and through a tubular unilateral approach, if technically you can't get a good bilateral decompression, mm-hmm. then these patients, at least in my hands, often have continued symptom, symptoms uh, and are, are less happy with it. So it's an excellent operation, but it's a, it's technically a little bit more demanding, and, and it, it may be a little bit more difficult on the decompression
1: standpoint. And and uh, just to, to kind of wrap up and finish all the different op- approach options, I, I I also find if I if if a patient like this comes in where an indirect decompression and anterior or lateral approach is an option, I do often consider it if it's anatomically feasible because I, I find that. I can I can get a nice graft in uh, a good bio, biomechanical restoration of height, um, and 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 kind of avoid dealing with nerves, which is odd for a neurosurgeon to say, but uh, you know, I've become more orthopedic in my old age. So. But I,
0: I think I agree with you completely. With someone who's reduced in the supine position, symptoms go away. All we've got to do is hold that patient in place. So I, I agree. I think either an anterior or a lateral approach with. Uh, Percutaneous instrumentation, percutaneous screws, for example, is an excellent treatment for this. It's very minimally invasive, have
1: an excellent recovery, very, very short operation um, with with few risks. So, so I, so I think, kind of, in conclusion, for everybody, I'd like to thank everybody for watching this, this uh, session. Um, but, but really, there's not, not a lot of strong data pushing you in one direction or the other. It really is d- d- dependent on what, what you're able to do in your hands um, as a spine provider, um, and, and maybe over time, there'll be some, some more data that, that bears out that maybe there's le- less adjacent segment degeneration, those types of things with one approach over the other. But f- at this point, it's whether, whatever you can do. S- most safe in the most safe fashion. Thank you.